<laughs> Thanks, Peter, for thinking I'm 6'5 six, six, here. All right. Jeez. Has I gone that long? All right. <clears throat> All right. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name's Chris. I'm one of the the pastor is here. Great to see, see you all again. Uh, if you don't know who I am, it's because I've been gone for three months and a week. I haven't preached for that long since uh, before Memorial Day. So I've been on sabbatical all summer, and that's uh, my first Sunday back. I worked, um, worked all week, which was great reconnecting with staff and everything. My key worked on Monday, which was great. Meant I'm still, I still have a job here. Um, and good reconnecting with staff, but it's great to be here on, on Sunday and, and, and to see you all again. Um, if, yeah, again, if you haven't met me before, I'd love to do that. If you want to come down front, maybe after the service, I'll stick around as long as, uh, as I can. I, I've been hearing there's a lot of new people this summer which, uh, from various staff and so forth, which is, which is great. But um, I did want to say, I know I said this during my last sermon in May. I'm sure you all remember this. Uh, probably not. But, uh, but I was talking to, a, a, actually a little more backstory, talking to a pastor friend uh, who actually pastors a church in Salem, Massachusetts. We ran into each other at a Twins game a few weeks ago randomly. It was kind of cool. Uh, he's been on a, on a sabbatical, mini sabbatical of his own, and so he's in town. Uh, but we were just sharing about our churches, and he made some comment about um, the apparent health of Hiawatha Church. Uh, and he, he follows us a bit on social media. He knows a number of Hiawathians. He knows me. And so just like, you, you seem to be leading a healthy church. And uh, and you're on sabbatical. And, and so I said, other than in my mind, thinking, you know, things like, you have no idea how messy we are, you know, um, which I always think, or, because we're sinners saved by grace and we have our messes and, and all that stuff. So, but, but that aside, the, the thing I always say to people who, um, who say this, uh, other than just to thank God immediately in my heart, because it's him, not me or, or us, is the one thing I learned about leadership early on is surround yourself with amazing people who are strong where you're weak and who are otherwise competent, gifted ministers of the gospel who love Christians, who love people who aren't Christians yet, and who are crazy about Jesus Christ. And by God's grace, that's what um, we've, I've, we've just been able to do. And, and so uh, all of these staff and overseers and leaders, uh, thanks a ton. Speaking for Aletha, my wife, and my kids, uh, it was a great sabbatical. And I wish I could kind of like update you a bit on the highs of the whole thing, but we'd be here... It's already going to be a, a, a longer morning here, so um, we will be done in time. I, should, I shouldn't say that. I just got a lot to say. It's like preaching after three months. It's like, dude, holy cow, got to cut a bunch out here, but, um, but no. Uh, but I do want to just acknowledge the staff and overseers and leaders. Uh, we love you guys. You're, you're amazing. Thank you. Especially Spence, who I asked to do parts of my job and then do all of his job as well uh, this summer, and he did, did amazing. So thanks, brother, for... Um, holding the fort down so well. Um, it was relationally hard. Uh, last thing I'll say, relationally hard not being here. We worshiped at other churches, um, three churches that are like sister churches, partner churches of ours in the city uh, throughout the summer. We were here twice in the, in the balcony in the way back. It was kind of fun to sneak in 10 minutes late and be here, uh, but mostly worshiping other places, but it just wasn't the same. And that's kind of a dust statement, I know, but it, it was hard. And so uh, this is our home We've missed it dearly. Um, but ultimately, praise God for our church, right? Uh, this is, Hiawatha Church is Jesus' church. This is not any person's church. It will always be his. We belong to Jesus. In fact, ownership uh, will come up a little bit in the sermon today, too. We, we are purchased by the blood of Christ. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. Uh, churches exist because God intends them to. And he is the chief shepherd. He's the chief pastor here. And he, he always will be. 
All right, so let's dive in. We are in the book of Acts right now. Uh, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, Acts 19 or phone apps, that'd be great. Uh, but we are uh, in Acts, and we've been reading about the theological history of what basically happens after Jesus rises from the dead, spends 40 days with people and eating with them and teaching them and saying, yes, it's really me in the body. I'm not a ghost or a vision. I'm actually alive and convincing uh, with many proofs. Uh, the first part of Acts said, if you remember that in chapter 1, with many proofs, he proved he was uh, in fact, alive and the owner of death. And so in Revelation, it says he, he owns or has the keys of death in Hades, like he is above death. Not like this yin-yang kind of Star Wars theology stuff where he's one half of the force. He is over, God is over all things. And so he spent 40 days doing that and then he ascends to be seated at the right hand of his father, God. And so in short, then what happens then throughout this book is right afterwards, the church is born. And so we're titling this series, The Church is Born, because it's such a big thread in this series. And, uh, and the gospel then begins to spread. So the gospel, the good news of Jesus, begins to spread through the church's evangelistic and church planting ministries throughout Asia Minor and into these Greco-Roman areas further west. And so we've been seeing this occur all summer, as the other pastors here have been preaching. You've seen this uh, if you've been here. And we're going to continue to see it today through the Apostle Paul's experiences in the city of Ephesus. So just to get your ge geographical bearings, Ephesus is right there in the, in the red circle. And Antioch of Syria is right here, which is a big kind of launch pad for Paul and all of his uh, church planning journeys. He's on his third journey now. Uh, most of your Bibles should have maps like this in the back if you're interested in kind of looking at exactly where Paul went, the Apostle Paul went, after he converted to Christianity as a, a Jewish Christian murderer. Remember, God saves him in chapter 9. He becomes this actually biggest advocate ever, in, in a sense, at least in the book, for Christianity. So, uh, but anyway, he's sent out to plant churches, to evangelize the lost, to encourage Christians, to spread the gospel, to be this kind of like major tool of God uh, in, in that regard. And this uh, kind of shows here one uh, circle he took in his third church planting journey. So today is essentially part three of Paul's uh, adventures in Ephesus. Um, we are, uh, Paul has been sharing the gospel to people here. He's been baptizing people, helping to establish a church here in Ephesus. Uh, we get the name Ephesians after this book, uh, which is one of the letters of the New Testament. He's been strengthening leaders. He's been uh, building the church, really, in every sense of the word. Last week, as Spence preached, we saw how miracles are taking place, demons are being exercised, and people had this huge bonfire burning all of their uh, dark magic books as well as they converted, in defiance of the devil, in defiance of their sin and past lives, and in defiance of this idea, as we just kind of sung about, in defiance of the works of their own hands. So that's a key phrase we'll see come up. We've seen this in Acts a lot. We're going to see it come up again today as well, so kind of keep that in the back of your mind. But magic is a type of seeking power elsewhere from God, usually from within. And so this big book burning in Ephesus was a statement saying, we are no longer seeking to save ourselves. We believe that it's only the hands of God that saves us, not the best of our days, not the best of humanity being the thing, the goal, but rather God saving the worst of humanity is our story, is our mantra, is our song, is our evangelistic message. So the hands of God saved, not the hands of figuratively and literally, of people, of us. And so the book Burning was a statement saying that. It was this belief that God has saved us. His magic, God's magic, through his son Jesus Christ, is what has saved us. 
and we are just undeserving recipients. So, again, keep this in mind as we go today. It's going to continue to be a really big theme moving forward, and especially if you're brand new to Christianity or not a Christian yet. This is the message of the Bible, at least one of the major messages of the Bible. Saved by grace, not by works. Saved by the hands of God, not by the hands of people. Circumcised not with human hands, but circumcised with a, with a uh, non-human hands or a type of circumcision made without hands. Uh, Paul says in a spiritual circumcision, a removal of the flesh of sin from our heart, like Paul says in Colossians 2. If you're familiar with that, same kind of idea. But these, these, this language comes up so much in the Bible because it is the story. To make God famous and to save uh, woeful sinners like us. So today is, again, the gospel in Ephesus part 3, how the gospel both incites and quells riots. How the gospel of Jesus Christ starts riots, it's that offensive, but how it also serves to quell and stop us from yelling at God at the same time. It's the power of God to save us at at the same time. So we'll see both uh, come out today. All right, so let's start with Acts 19, uh, 21 to 41, a few verses here, and we'll stop to make a couple of comments, but then finish it. Uh, Verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And after having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. All right, so just stop right there for one second. I want to highlight this phrase, uh, especially if it's been a while for you reading Acts or if you weren't uh, here much this summer, because I know the elders talked a lot about this. Uh, but this phrase, he himself stayed in Asia, or Asia Minor, uh, for a while with the church is the idea. He stayed with Christians in a prolonged sense. So Acts, remember, is an apologetic for the local church. Acts is a defense for what we're doing here right now in this very room. It explains why gathering with other Christians is not just so important, but part of the movement of the gospel in our lives as well. From our individualistic selves towards God and and other people. And so we see when, when Paul goes to these major metropolitan areas, he evangelizes and disciples. He spends time with non-Christians first a lot of times, but then stays with those who convert. He stays with the Christians for very long periods of time sometimes before he leaves to go on to different cities. So what we see in this pattern is conversions were not the only thing that mattered to him. Conversions are not the only thing that mattered to Paul, but instead starting churches, training leaders, and making mature the body of Christ is what mattered, and it should be for us as well. If you're a Christian in the room, this should be for you and for me as well. And so that's one way to look at this idea of Paul staying for a while, this theme, this theological theme, and and pragmatic one as well. On the human side, is this is a paradigm for Christian ministry and a paradigm for Christian living. Staying a while, investing, gathering, relationship building, growing in the gospel, knowing our Bibles better, learning how to actually pray in a selfless way, learning what it means to be a Christian in community, being saved away from our individual selves into a relationship with God and his people, Jesus' bride, the church. So it's one piece there. In fact, we could look at that and just say, if you're a Christian, does this mimic my life? Paul's a sinner saved by grace like us. Does this mimic my life? Do I have a strong love for other Christians like he did? 
Can I not wait to be around them? Or even if I don't want to sometimes, do I anyway? Because I know it's the right thing to do and it's the way that I hear from God and connect with Jesus Christ himself and receive ongoing grace through the gifts of his people. So that's one way to look at something like this is on the human side is to say, how is it a paradigm for my life and for Christian living and ministry? Another way to look at it is to see it more on this symbolic divine side, which is to say, this isn't really about us, but it's about seeing Jesus in Paul or gospel truth in Paul's actions, which is to say that Jesus then doesn't just come into our lives momentarily, but he stays a while. In fact, he stays forever. So better than what Paul does here. Another way to look at this then would be to to say, Jesus is not an itinerant teacher blowing through town with a few pieces of moral advice for us or to give us a TED talk. But he is an exile from God, ender, a savior forever, like a love-struck groom traveling a great distance to be with his bride. That's what Jesus is. That's who he is. That's what he's like. And passages like this, even though they're not directly about Jesus, they are indirectly about him because this Paul, who's staying a while, is full of Jesus Christ by the Spirit. And so it's Jesus in him that leads him to stay and to tell us about the characteristics of God, who stays a while and forever with us. Doesn't just blow through town with, oh, by the way, live like this and do this and stop doing this and your life will be better. See you later as I go to the next crusade. No, he stays in the towns of our hearts. You see, the more that you guys and I know this, the more we know that Christ is with us, stays with us forever when we're saved, the less we'll try to lure him back to town with our good works. The more you know that he's with you and never leaves you when you believe in the gospel, the less you'll try to lure him back to the town of your hearts and lives with your good deeds. That's what it means to mature. Do you believe he's with you or not? Or is he on the other side of Minneapolis right now? Or a billion miles away in outer space, whatever that means. Or is he with you? Is he with you forever? If he's with you, there's nothing else to do. There's nothing, no other moral deed to perform. No other prayer to pray. Nothing else religious to do. If he's with us, if the final barrier has been broken by the blood of Christ, if he's with us right now by the Spirit, what else is there to do? And the answer is to listen to the one who on the cross said what? It is finished. It's done. There's nothing else to do religiously to be saved except to believe in Jesus, that he is with us, and that he, that he always will be. All right? Okay. That's a bit of an aside. <laughs> We're going to the meat of this now, but this is important because we see this play out in Acts over and over again, and it's important theology for us to get whispers of the gospel in the actions of the apostle of Christ, as he calls himself, and as he's called in the Bible, Paul. All right, so let's read here the rest of this section, Acts 19, 21 to uh, 41. Actually, Brian, could you advance these slides for me? I forgot to kind of mark where I'm at here. Just, I'm going to read all the way through 41. Let's read here 21 to 41, uh, 23, sorry, uh, to 41, and we'll, uh, we'll come back and, and unpack this. All right, still in Ephesus. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The way is Christianity. 
For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the worksmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized he was a Jew, for about two hours, they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another, but if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger here of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. All right, so clear as mud, right? A great passage, a lot going on here, something kind of unique to Acts, but also we've been seeing, remember, that when the gospel comes to a city or an individual heart, it's met, with res- it's met with resistance, but also acceptance. And so all of us who are Christians have had both of those. Some of you are still resisting the gospel. Uh, and, but in, in the city, too, in Minneapolis, when we bring the gospel, it's going to be met with resistance, but also widespread acceptance. And we just see both all the time. There, there's two things we can do with it, receive it or not, reject it or not. All right, so let's kind of see both today. And, and Spence talked about last week uh, some of the more positive uh, things. I was summarizing that. This is a bit more negative, uh, but we do see a lot of positive here at the end with, with what happens. I'll come back to that in a second. But uh, what I want to do is split this up into two things. The gospel incites and starts riots. The gospel of Jesus Christ does. And it also quells and stops them. So let's start with the inciting. Very interesting passage, as I was saying before, uh, especially when you think about exactly what Demetrius here, the silversmith, is saying, and this unnamed town clerk as well, because it's hard to determine if what they're saying is true, if what they're saying is just kind of true, or an exaggeration, flat out. For example, he's clearly threatened by the gospel here because in his eyes, 
it will lead less people to buy these little silver shrines of Artemis that he's making because they don't worship Artemis anymore but Jesus. And so he's threatened on a career kind of job level because of this. So on one level, is that true? Is he going to like sell less of these things now? It is true, right? I mean, on one level, of course, that's true. But on another level, it's probably an exaggeration. Like, does his entire job depend on these shrines? Is there no need for silver objects of any kind, size or shape, elsewhere in town? If he too became a Christian, would it demand that he quit his job? No. But would it affect it? Absolutely. The gospel affects every area of our life. Every area. It's all-encompassing. That's kind of the first big thing here is to see this. The gospel as a threat to our livelihood in some ways. And, and, and I'll unpack this because it's not true necessarily with everything we say, but to say that the gospel affects every area of our life is true. And so Demetrius' statement here then about his career could be applied to other things as well. Things like this. Wait a minute. These Christians are saying that we can't just do what we want to anymore or whatever we want to do. We can't have sex with whoever we want to anymore. We can't just identify as a different gender anymore. We can't only look out for ourselves anymore. They even have the audacity to suggest that we don't command our own destinies anymore. And the Christian answer to this is, yes, all of that actually is true. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. We've been bought with a price by the blood of Jesus Christ away from slavery to sin and we have a newfound identity in God and about ourselves. Isn't that good news? This is what the Christians would, would, would be saying here, of course, and what, what we say. Isn't that amazing news? And of course, not all are convinced yet until the Lord softens our heart. None of us were convinced of that. But this is the, the Christian response. But we see on this career level, just digging a little bit deeper here, When Demetrius says, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, we really get a glimpse into his heart, right? In our hearts as well, because all of us, all of us think this or or thought this until God invaded our hearts to transform us and just to cause us to think differently. But, But here's the question. Is this true? Is what he's saying here true? Do we really have true wealth from our jobs? Do we have true wealth from a business? The Christian response, the Bible's response, God's response, Jesus' response to this is no. No. Money itself is not evil, but it's a shadow only at best of true wealth. It's not the reality. True wealth spiritual. It's saying something like this, and we say this a lot. People who are not Christians would say this too, so this is just a widespread like humanity thing here, but it's like saying... Truly what makes me a wealthy man is my family and friends. You guys ever say that before? I heard someone saying that. Truly what makes me happy and wealthy, uh, this might be a really wealthy person saying this too, or a very poor person, because both can say it. Truly what makes me a wealthy person, I am wealthy with my, my, my kids and, and my spouse or my, my good friends that I have in life. That's what makes me a wealthy person. Or someone saying this. My, my, one of my grandparents always used to say this to me. Uh, he would say, When you have your health, you have everything. So kind of towards the end of his life, when you have your health, you have everything. It's kind of like that, right? It's looking beyond money 
to what truly makes us wealthy or happy. And so it's the same with Christian theology as it applies to Jesus, but dialed up all the more as it pertains to the gospel in Christ. We would just say, Christ would just say, that with Jesus we have wealth. Or, and please hear this, a lot of you know this, but be reminded of this, and let the Spirit convince you of this in your heart afresh. To be rich is to be saved from your sins. To be rich To be wealthy is to be saved from your sins and to be known by God and in that way to be blessed. Blessing means to be close to God, to be known by him. Not just to be happy all the time, but to be known by him. Look what Jesus says in the book of Revelation to the Laodiceans who are a neighboring city to the the Ephesians. And so I don't think it's it's a coincidence these themes come up to a neighboring city uh, to, to Ephesus, but Paul says this to Christians. It might appear that he's saying this to non-Christians. He's not. He's saying this to Christians who have forgotten everything I just said. All right, so to the, the church in Laodicea, he says, You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. And I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. All right? A a lot of Christian theologies and just Christians would say, oh, we can't talk about ourselves this way anymore. We can't talk about ourselves being pitiful and blind and naked. That was just a past thing. Well, look what Jesus does. Jesus talks to Christians in this way, and so should we about ourselves and others. Not to feel just like, crappy about ourselves all the time. That's not the point, but to say, where did we come from? Who are we at our core? Are we, do we, can we see or are we blind? Are we wealthy or are we poor, spiritually speaking? These are key questions. And what Jesus is saying, without me, you have nothing. Without me, you have absolutely nothing in life. Nothing. So buy from me Gold refined in the fire. He's speaking spiritually, metaphorically here, but he's saying, I'm the source. Buy salvation from me just by having faith. Uh, Ephesians 1.7 says, uh, until we are lavished on by the riches of his grace, his love, lavished on by that, until we obtain spiritual wealth from Jesus, we're impoverished in so many words. So again, to the, to the Ephesians, he writes in, Wealth language about what, what makes us truly wealthy because people have been influenced by Demetrius's false gospel. So Christians forget this. I forget this. Uh, people who are not yet Christians don't believe it. And here's the thing. It can become a threat to people who are wealthy or who simply don't understand the better news of Jesus Christ. All right. One more layer to this as we talk about what aspects of Christian truth and theology start riots. This is actually the most important thing. I've been starting small here and building uh, intentionally because the text kind of does this as well, but also to kind of just kind of crescendo here. This is really what's going on. And Peter talked about it a bit before the last song. This is really what starts the riot because you see after they hear this, they freak out. They, they are enraged, the Bible says, and they scream Artemis, goddess of the Ephesians, for how long? Did you catch that? Two hours straight in the theater. It's like, what? 
you know, puts Vikings games to shame, right? Or sports things to shame, but two hours straight, okay? This is it, though. This is what was, these other things kind of like, oh, I don't like that message, but this is what really did it. This tipped it. When Demetrius said, these Christians are saying, gods made with hands are not gods, that's that's the, the that's the, the the kindling there of the of the ultimate bonfire. Gods made with hands are not gods. This is a major motif in the book of Acts, guys. If you're brand new to this, just know this or remember this for the for the second, third, hundredth time if you already know this. But major motif. It's in Stephen's speech in Acts seven. It's in Paul's evangelistic appeal in Acts seventeen to the Athenians and, and everywhere in between. And it has to do with this contrasting human effort with divine effort. Contrasting the works of God's hands, being Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised, and the works of our hands, religious asceticism, moralism, volunteerism, being good. In all those things, doing them with the works of our hands, literally or figuratively. Or to put it a different way, the idea of Works on the left side being contrasted with grace, the grace of God. So in other words, it's not the shrines themselves that were being called out by the Christian message. You guys catch that? When, when, when you saw this kind of recounted in Acts 19, and granted we didn't get a, a, a kind of a, a big kind of unpacking of what the main content was of the message, but we do see this elsewhere. We see the actual sermons written out. But you see it with Paul earlier, too, a couple chapters ago, with how he brought the gospel to the Ephesians. But in any case, notice it doesn't say that the issue was with the little silver shrines themselves. What does it say the issue is? The issue is the principle of being made with hands or religious works, not counting. They don't count. It doesn't count for good. It doesn't count to our credit or to our resume or to our trophy case. That's what freaked people out. And that's the essence of the message. We do see that from Demetrius, right? Look what these Christians have the audacity to say. That what we make with our hands, what we do with our bodies, doesn't save us, doesn't count before God. The audacity to say that we can't flatter God by being good people. How dare they? That's what freaked people out. This is actually the real reason the second of the Ten Commandments says don't fashion God into an idol or into an image. This is the real reason it says this, because the mix between God, the reality of God, and the statement, my hands have done this or made this, the mixing of those is a mix from the pit of hell, from the mouth of the devil himself. And so God commands that never to be done, so that it's not just about the shrines, It's against the theology of what you do with your hand saves you. It's against works. So Demetrius' concern then could be kind of of recalibrated or restated in, in these terms. These Christians are saying that all of our acts of volunteerism, all of our acts of humanitarianism, all of our random acts of kindness don't count. That's their message, and the riot begins. They're saying the good works of our hands don't 
save us. This is how the Bible records this riot, and it's intentional. This is what gets Stephen killed. Remember Stephen's speech? I don't have time to go back into that. This is the meat of Stephen's speech and why the Jews just, they, they, they just seethe with anger. Remember it says that? They grind their teeth at him. They can't handle the message that God doesn't live in temples built by what? Human hands. Same message there. So they, they flip and they murder him. And Paul's actually the one overseeing his murder there. It's before he's converted. Awesome story. But now he's here with the same message and a similar kind of riot. Our religious asceticism doesn't matter. They're saying we're not enough. How dare those Christians? See, Demetrius and the crowds are rightly offended at this. And they shout back, not just the name Artemis of the Ephesians, but what are they actually shouting back at the gospel when they say Artemis of the Ephesians? What are they really shouting back? The works of my hands, what I've crafted, our God that we fashioned and made up in our own mythologies, because it represents us. And so we're bragging as they take selfies of themselves and post them. And they shout for two hours, Artemis of the Ephesians, the works of our hands, religious asceticism, look at what I've done for two solid hours over and over and over again. This is the problem. This is what sin is. It's not that you and I have murdered or committed adultery or been arrogant or prideful. What sin is, according to the Bible, ultimately, those are just symptoms. What sin ultimately is, is that we have thought too highly of ourselves. And we have sought independence from God. This is the problem. Not the silver shrines, but that. And all of a sudden, doesn't this start to matter even more to 21st century America? Because the, the big stumbling block for us might not be silver shrines of Artemis. But that's not the point. The point is, what we do with our hands don't count, doesn't count. It doesn't count towards salvation. It doesn't in any way favor us with God. But only the works of God's hands, Jesus Christ. So this is exactly actually the type of rioting that our culture exhibits before true biblical grace-centered Christianity that says only the works of God's hands can save. You know, we are, I am, I am this, you are this, we are this, but we, we replace God with good works all the time. We replace God with good works all the time. And we riot, literally, figuratively, in our heart, verbally, whatever, but we riot when that is threatened. And that's the bad news. But, but here's the good news. The message of Christ doesn't just incite riots, it quells them. It saves us from this state of trusting in our good deeds. And that's what we move to next. The gospel then uh, quells, quells riots. So um, I've kind of held back a bit from going full bore into the gospel here because I want us to see it here. Uh, there, there's movement in this passage from bad to good. The bad news to the good news. The problem to the solution. The solution just happens to be kind of set forth in symbolic ways, typological ways. So, uh, but here's what happens. So as the story goes, a- after the riot starts, these two Christians are dragged into the mob. Paul the apostle wants to go in, but is held back. Isn't that interesting? 
You don't see this much in Paul's ministry. Usually he's kind of just like, let me go ripping off people's hands and charging in right with guns blazing. But he says he's held back, he's convinced, and he is separated for a time uh, from these Christians. So he wants to go in, he's held back. There's yelling for two hours straight. We talked about that mass confusion. It actually says many people didn't even know why they were there. Isn't that awesome? It's like, oh, yeah, this is, yeah, I am angry about. What are we angry about again? You know, and they have no idea what's going on, but they're yelling. Uh, there's a lot of cool, actually, spiritual truth there that I, I chose not to kind of unpack. But just, I mean, that, that, if that doesn't scream the problem with the human heart and just kind of where we're at as a culture, I, I don't know what does. It's like Twitter before Twitter happened, right? Um, but anyway, that's, that's the problem. We don't even know our biggest need. We don't even know how bad we've sinned against God. We don't even know that we're a part of the riot sometimes. We don't even know that we have this problem with our creator until someone tells us. All right, anyway, I told you I wasn't going to go into it. I'm not. All right, but he, here's, there's, there's a lot of ways to take this interpretationally, but here's the important thing. The two Christians were unjustly mobbed, and then second, the town clerk quelled the riot. In that order, an unjust uh, mob of Christians and the town clerk quelled the riot in that order in the face of the mob's treason-like sin before God. So then, when you think about it this way, the point is theological, not pragmatic. The point isn't, this is always what will happen when you preach the gospel to someone or or to your own heart, or this is what you should do in the face of religious rioting, or here's a principle for fighting fairly with your wife or, or husband, you know. Uh, that's not the point. It exists here as a smaller story to point beyond itself to the bigger story. It functions, as does all of Acts and most of the rest of the Bible, as a downstream from the headwaters of the cross narrative, a downstream from the cross type narrative. I'm not just talking about it being after the gospel accounts, I am, but also theologically and, and kind of pragmatically actually as well. Here's what I mean. The events of Acts 19, maybe you saw this as I read, the events of Acts 19 are intentionally similar to the events of Jesus' arrest and Jesus' trial and even suggested Jesus' death. All right? Riots and mobs form in both. The words are actually used in the passion narratives and the Gospels in reference to Christ. Individuals, as in Christ's case, or people here, two people are arrested or dragged away unjustly is the key. The crowds are yelling a name in both, right? Artemis here. And what name in, in the Gospel accounts? Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. And both with actually a similar motive. But both in defiance to God, and there's a figure in both stories uh, trying to reason with the crowds. It's the town clerk here. Who's the one trying to reason with the crowds in the gospel accounts? Calmly and rationally. It's Pilate, right? Pilate very kind of calmly and rationally trying to dispel, dispel the crowds and, and, and the riot and so forth and to be kind of a, a rationalist with the whole thing. And that's where the two stories diverge, of course, because in the Jesus narrative, he's flogged and crucified anyway. In this narrative, the town clerk wins over the crowd and the two Christians are set free. But then, in both stories, the mob is dispersed. And that's the point. What transpires here in Acts 19 
is yet another symbolic playing out of Jesus' arrest and trial to show us that it's Christ's experience amongst the riot of the Jews that led to his crucifixion that in turn led to the quelling of our riot against God. See, we're not, we're not so much in this story Gaius and Aristarchus here, though we might feel attacked for our faith a lot, for sure. But we're not so much them. Those two represent Christ. We're the mob. And, and the gospel is then, like Gaius and Aristarchus, Aristarchus' unjust arrest here preceded the dispelling of the mob, so did Christ's unjust arrest and crucifixion precede and cause our salvation, quelling our mob-like posture towards God, disarming us, stopping us from yelling, stopping us from clinging to the works of our hands, and ultimately saving us from our sins so that we, even we, might be transformed from his enemies into his friends. That's the gospel. Another angle on this would be to see that Paul is like a God the Father figure here, meaning like Paul was separated, held back from his friends in Acts 19, so was God separated from Jesus for a time. That's why Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22.1 on the cross. Allowing his son to experience exile from him for us so that our exile from God would be ended. So, Christ is a substitute. This is what he's doing on the cross. He's bearing all the bad things. He's bearing all the punishments, all of the wrath, all the consequence for our rebellion, our high treason against him. And part of that is bearing exile. Christ experiences exile from his Father on the cross so that when we believe in him and trust in what he did there for us, there's no more exile anymore for the enemies of God who have become his friends through the blood of Christ. Yet another angle on this would be to see the town clerk as a sort of God figure as well. Even though his motives and reasoning are clearly non-Christian, his reasoned, calm posture towards the rioters eventually convinced them to disperse, just like God's gentleness with sinners is part of how we understand the gospel. Proverbs 15.1 in the Old Testament says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, exactly like what's happening here. In Acts 19, a gentle posture towards the rioters eventually dispels it. Now, this proverb in the Bible is not here just for us to instruct us on how to respond to hostility. It's here for Christ. Because through his son's death and the gentleness of that, his response to our riot of sin is actually quite gentle. Instead of crushing us, his son offers to be crushed instead in our place. In the face of us yelling back to the gospel or to God, we save ourselves with our own hands, God. God's response through Christ is, no, you don't. But I will use your obstinance and the evil in your heart to ultimately show you that it's my hands that save you. Always. My son's hands, nailed to a cross among criminals, unjustly, held out wide, to welcome home the rebel. Here's something to ponder as we start to, uh, to wrap up. The Christian message here in Ephesus was not love one another. When the Christians preached, the message was not just simply love one another. 
How do we know that? How do we know? Does that message start mobs? Does the message just love one another, just be kind, just be good, does that start out of your mind mobs? Never. It's not offensive. Right? We know they didn't preach this. Not just because Acts says they didn't preach this. We know they didn't preach it because a mob, a riot formed after they preached, after they shared the gospel. Mobs don't form over love one another. Mobs don't form over, you can do it. Mobs don't form over, oh, you're a good person. Just try to erase that little, little bit of bad in you, and you'll be all right. Oh, thanks, fake Jesus. That's great. <laughs> Mobs don't form over, girl, wash your face. Mobs don't form over, God wants you to have your best life now. Mobs don't form over that crap. It's not true, but mobs don't form over it. What were the Christians unjustly arrested for? See, mobs do form over your good works aren't enough. For people who think they're really good, that's the worst thing you can hear. Worst thing you can hear. Nothing you've done in life has counted towards your salvation. It's not that it doesn't matter at all to God. It means it doesn't count when it comes to salvation. The message, we need Jesus' saving power. To quote Jesus in John 15, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. You know that Jesus said that? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Not some things or whatever, half things. Apart from me, there's nothing you can do. I'm like the vine and you're the branches. And branches don't do anything. They're nourished by the vine. So it's a big metaphor. But, but apart from me, you can do nothing. Because you're unable. Talk about a non-American message, right? You're unable. Who wants to hear that? That starts a riot in my heart. I'm a very type, type A driven guy, you know, and a big part of my story was just coming to terms with this is hard. I'm a rioter. You and I are so unable to get to heaven on our own that God had to come here and give his, his own life for us. Are you kidding? All the, all the type A-driven moralists in the room say, what? Right? We start a mob. Or everyone does. It's not just one type of person, but you know what I'm saying. It's just hard to hear for, pri- for prideful people, and we're all prideful. Quietly or loudly, we're all prideful. The gospel is not a motivational speech. The gospel is your hands don't save, but God's hands do and have. Believe in him and what he's done and you'll be saved. Don't strive for it. Don't try for it. Receive. That's true in this room right now, guys. This is not, I'm not just teaching a text that was written 2,000 years ago and like what it's about. I am doing that. But I'm saying these, are, these words are alive for us in this room. God is calling out to us in the face of our obstinance and our riot. And he's saying, I love you. It's not your hands that save you. That's actually good news believe in my son's hands that were nailed to a cross, that he was effectively working, working there for your salvation and, and you will be saved. Okay, a couple of things here as, uh, as we wrap up. One, we're all rioters before God. That's what this is saying. We're all rioters before God. 
Yes, there's there are plenty of lessons here on how to respond to anger, how to displace wrath with gentleness, what to expect when we bring the gospel to a lost city like Minneapolis. But those aren't the main lessons. The main thing going on here is through Christ, God has responded to us gently with grace, blood, and love. That's what this is saying. Think about in the story for a second what happens at the very end. What the last verse say? The angry mob was dispersed. All those people who are just committing high treason against God for two solid hours straight, you know, you think like if that were like if we're the ones being sinned against, we would last about five minutes before we'd want to like kill people, you know, uh, or at least like just, oh, I can't handle it. God's patiently waiting there those whole two hours, absorbing their angst, absorbing their sin, taking it. And then what happened to that crowd? The crowd went home and had dinner that night with their families. What an injustice that was. What an injustice for those people before the creator of the universe, including their very bodies and souls, for God to let them go. But he did. In the same way, because of Christ's death, and we get a whisper of this in the story, because of Gaius's and Aristarchus's arrest that whispers Christ's, but I'll just say it this way, because of Christ's death, so do we unfairly experience God's grace because God's grace is not payment back for us being good. It's just given in spite of our, our badness. It's unfair, but it's good and, and, and full of grace and love. There's an injustice in this story. There's an injustice in your and my salvation. It shouldn't have happened. But it did because of his great love for us. And so if there's a final like appeal here, I, I would just say to you declaratively, this is true wealth. Believe this gospel. Receive the riches of his grace and the hope of eternal life. To use Demetrius' words regarding Artemis, let your good works be deposed of their magnificence. Let your good works be deposed of their magnificence. And let Christ, the hands of God, be magnificent in your minds and in your heart. When you believe Jesus stays with you, there's nothing more to do, nothing you need to do to lure him back to the town of your hearts and lives. He's already there even as you doubt, even as you sin, even as you struggle to persevere, he remains faithful. He's a faithful God. All of your days, all of my days, all of our days. And the Bible says he never changes. So he always will be. We pray. Father, thank you for this word. Help us now, God, to respond to you in communion.